Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press one. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press two. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Montage. Art dealer and mambo enthusiast Arnie Glincher is looking at galleys of Oscar Hiwelos' book, The Mambo Kings Play Songs of Love. They shake hands. A quick cut to them standing outside Warner Brothers Studio. Two years later, they shake hands. A quick cut to them outside the Golden Gate Theater in San Francisco. Thirteen years later, they shake hands. Sadly, and they part ways. What? Wait, wait, why? This was supposed to be the musical that brought Latinx stories to Broadway and it's folding in the city by the bay? Why is Arnie leaving his heart and his show in San Francisco? Well, you see, what happened was, well... We're going to let composer Carlos Frizzetti tell us in this episode of Broadway Bound, the musicals that never got to Broadway, which is going to focus on the 2005 heartbreaker, The Mambo Kings. Hey friends, Rob Schneider here and welcome to Broadway Bound, the musicals that never got to Broadway, the podcast. Today we're taking a look at Mambo Kings, the 2005 musical The Mambo Kings. And out of all the musicals that we've covered so far, this one to me is quite fascinating. Not to say that the others aren't fascinating, but fascinating to me in the fact that had this show come to Broadway, it would have changed the cultural conversation that we are currently having today about representation on Broadway, uh, specifically for the Latinx community. Now, Latinx representation on Broadway has always been complicated, so complicated that Lin-Manuel Miranda has said one of the main reasons he wanted to bring in the Heights to the stage is because he was sick of seeing Latinx characters in musicals be victims or murderers. Now, prior to West Side Story, Latinx representation in musicals could be seen in musicals like Mexican Hayride that took place in Mexico where people on the run poses mariachi players and tortilla vendors, or in Wonderful Town, where Latinx uh, sailors, all played by white actors from Hoboken, teach the conga. Latinx was found more on screen, actually, than in theater at the time, and it was mostly people like Carmen Miranda, Dolores Del Rio, Lupe Velez, Cesar Romero, or Desi Arnaz, a brilliant producer who played Lucille Ball's long-suffering husband on I Love Lucy, and quite often they were a punchline in most of these things. Finally, in 1957, West Side Story emerged 
and even though Cheetah Rivera was Anita, she was a victim, the character, and her cousin Maria, a victim. Her family and friends, gang members, trying to kill their way to the top. It's not exactly the best representation of Latinx characters. They would then appear sporadically, whether it was dancing to El Sombrero with Lucille Ball and Wildcat, or bemoaning that a better day will come in James Taylor's songs for the review working. There was Zoot Suit that looked at the racially charged Zoot Suit riot of 1943, Tango Argentina, which was a dance review, Kiss of the Spider Woman about prisoners, and then in 1998, Paul Simon came to Broadway with The Cape Man, a musical about a convicted murderer um, that was actually based on a true story. Can there be a Latinx story where policemen aren't on hand to supervise them, sequester them, and hold them down? Well, if Broadway wasn't going to do this, maybe the movies would. In the 1980s, much like the 2020s, immigration was a hot-button issue, and in 1986, President Ronald Reagan, he signed the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986 that allowed immigrants who had entered the U.S. illegally before January 1st, 1982, to apply for legal status, provided they paid fines and back taxes. This provision, which Reagan himself referred to as quote-unquote amnesty, allowed around 3 million immigrants to secure legal status after paying $185 demonstrating good moral character and learning to speak English. Between, yes, Ronald Reagan did this, between 1980 and 1990, a span that included the eight-year Reagan administration, the foreign-born population of the U.S. increased from 14.1 million to 19.8 million. Reagan was actually very welcoming to those fleeing from war-torn Latinx countries. If you saw Latinx character representation in uh, television or in movies, you either had they were either being used as a punchline in the television, like a great example, I think, is the television sitcom I Married Dora, if anybody remembers that sitcom in which a man um, marries his uh, maid from Guatemala so that way she can stay uh, in the country. Uh, it was a comedy, folks. O or the very moving film El Norte, um, which did a lot to show people what exactly goes through the experience of an immigrant in their journey to get to California. Um, so if you've never seen El Norte, I would encourage you to do so. It's a really, really beautiful film. But in 1989, a novel emerged that blended these two worlds, humor and heart, and the book was called The Mambo Kings Play Songs of Love, written by Oscar Jiueles, a novel that used a prose style evocative of Cuban musical rhythms, and this won the Pulitzer Prize for Literature, making it the first novel by a United States-born Latinx to do so. When the novel begins, we meet the dying Cesar Castillo, an old musician, who is spending his last hours listening to recordings made by his band, the Mambo Kings, where he was pianist and band leader, and while fondly remembering the time he and his brother Nestor, a trumpeter, had their 15 minutes of fame during an episode of I Love Lucy. As death approaches Cesar during these 407 pages, his life flashes before his eyes, including his brother Nestor constantly rewriting one song about a lost love, uh, the women in his life that he sacrificed for fame, and the Cuban lifestyle that disappeared when Castro came to power. You add in Nestor leaving his uh, girlfriend Maria for the now-pregnant Dolores and Cesar hooking up with a blonde bombshell named Vanna Vane. Isn't that a great name? Um, and then also the two of them being iron-fisted by the bully Fernando Perez who held a control of the music scene or the Latinx music scene in America at this time, a fictional character, of course. But the book beautifully tackled the question of assimilation and celebrating your heritage while adapting to a new one. And lucky for Oscar, the film rights were sold to this book even before it was published. And that's where we're going to meet 
Arnie Glimcher. Now, we asked Mr. Glimcher, because he's still with us, God bless him, uh, to join us for this podcast, but he declined. Now, if you love theater and don't know Arnie Glimcher, that makes sense, as he is an art dealer, very, very big in the art community, who loved mambo music. And when he heard his buddy Oscar was working on a novel about this topic, he purchased the film rights in 1988, got Cynthia Sidre to adapt the book, he made her do 24 drafts, but we like that. We like that. Practice makes perfect. And um, as director, Arnie got the one and only Arnie Glimcher, director of such movies as... Well, this will be Arnie's first film. And surprise, surprise, this, the studios at this time were not interested in the story of the Mambo Kings. So Arnie paid the crew's salaries while they waited. And, of course, things, you know, hiccuped itself along the way. Now, the biggest hiccup was that you needed to use actual footage from the television series I Love Lucy to tell this story. They were going to do like a Forrest Gump thing where they were going to um, uh, uh, CGI in, if the CGI even existed at the time, they were going to CGI in the actors that played the Castillos uh, into uh, an episode of I Love Lucy. But Lucy's kids, uh, Lucy and, and Desi Jr., uh, weren't granting the rights to them until Arnie finally prevailed. And I don't know if this was part of the compromise, but Desi Jr. ended up playing his dad in the movie. Uh, the movie went to Universal, then they didn't want it, went to Warner Brothers, and even at Warner Brothers, they still needed more producers. Maybe some stars would help. Um, and so the studio pitched uh, for the Castillo brothers, uh, Jeremy Irons and Ray Liotta. Yes, Warner Brothers wanted Jeremy Irons and Ray Liotta, but Arnie Glimcher wanted TV heartthrob Armand Asante as Cesar and Pedro Almodovar actor Antonio Banderas as Nestor, who actually had to learn his lines phonetically. Glimcher convinced the studio to drop Jeremy Irons, and so, shockingly, at least one Latinx actor was cast to play a Latinx character. Armand Asante is Italian, uh, plus appearances from real-life stars from that particular scene to give it an, an, um, a, a patina of authenticity, people like Tito Puente and Celia Cruz. And I have to say, it would have been very easy for uh, Mr. Glimcher to simply say, yep, I'll take Jeremy Irons, yep, I'll take Ray Liotta. But the idea that he was so passionate that Latinx actors be represented on screen, even if they weren't box office names. Armand DeSante was pretty much a soap opera star, and nobody really knew who Antonio Banderas was at this particular time. In 1952, the Castillo brothers came to America. I love this country! With a suitcase full of songs and a head full of dreams. Just off the boat, and you think you're going to land it? gig in a downtown club. There is more to life than just playing mambo. Well, there is. But as the music played... You are the cat's meow on stage. I know that, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> and the rhythms pounded. Have a Havana with me, Cesar. And let's see how Fernando Perez can take the mambo kings to the top. <laughs> Raged in my own way. I have loved you. You really don't know how lucky you are to have a woman like Dolores. Tempers flared. Why do I always have to do what you want? And only their music could keep two brothers. You sign with me, mi amigo, and your future is gold. From falling apart. Please, don't break his heart. Nobody owns the Castillo brothers. Be careful, Nestor. Now, musically, it was impeccable. The guys did their own singing. Glimcher wrote the lyrics to a, a, a song called The Beautiful Maria of My Soul that received an Oscar nomination for Best Song. 
the sunlight of your smile In the summer of our life In the magic of love Storms above scattered away Lovers dreaming in the night Reaching for paradise But as the dark shadows fade Love slips away On an empty stretch of beach In the pattern of the waves Drawing pictures with my hand In the sand I see your face Skipping pebbles on the sea Wishing for paradise Sand castles crumble below The restless tides ebb and the flow Listening to a shell Hoping for your voice Beautiful Maria The film received very strong reviews, but not enough business in 1992 to make more than half of its $15 million budget back. Things like Wayne's World, Basic Instinct, and My Cousin Vinny overshadow this lovely film about immigration and the American dream. Uh, Out of 51 films in the month of March when it debuted, it ranked uh, 17. Uh, And The Mamba Kings became one of many feel-good early 90s films that was played ad nauseum on cable. I call the period of musical theater from 2001 to 2009 the comfort era because the world was in such a state of flux with the 2000 presidential election, 9-11, Iraq war, that Broadway musicals had to comfort its audiences or it would lose business. So an influx in jukebox musicals, revivals, and movies turned into musicals flooded Broadway. Why? It was comforting to people to know what they were going to get. Some of the movies were hits like The Producers or Hairspray or Thoroughly Modern Millie, and some were not, like Dance of the Vampires, Sweet Smell of Success, and Urban Cowboy. So movies were a great place to go to develop a musical. A structure was there, there was familiarity with the material, and if, you know, you're like producers or Hairspray, where music was already part of the storytelling, even better. But the idea for a Mambo Kings musical had actually emerged much earlier on the set of the film. Glimcher believed that there was something a stage production could do better to convey the spirit of the story than the movie ever could. Uh, This is a quote from Oscar Huelis from an interview with the San Francisco Gate newspaper in 2005 as Mambo King's The Musical was ready to open there for its out-of-town tryouts. The movie telescopes the whole story. It's like a fragment of the whole story. And there was more stuff with gangsters in it. So when Arnie mentioned doing a musical, I had all these wild ideas. So around 94, 95, I went to work writing a script, doing some of it while Latin jazz played in the background. 
I read everything I could of librettos, and I saw everything in the theater, and I had a pretty wild idea of how to set it. In one version, I had Cesar Castillo auditioning as an old man for one of these Stars Born shows. Then I had a lot of flashbacks, scenes that were novelistic. The hardest thing was finding the clear vision of how the narrative would go and keep the story in focus. Novels are complicated in a totally different way. The world of the Mambo Kings is so cool, with the dancing, the musicians, and the women. There's a lot that's perfect for the stage, plus the personalities of the brothers are so interesting. But stuff that works on the page doesn't necessarily translate aloud, though there's a lot of elements in the musical that are straight quotations from the novel. For example, one of the female characters, when she meets Nestor, says, Sometimes I feel like I'm a character out of a novel. Arnie and Oscar continued to work and work and work and created 25 separate drafts of this musical. First, they were leaning into the dark aspects of the show, the idea of compromise, the idea of adultery, the idea of self-harm and suicide. And then they realized that humor was essential to the storytelling. Oscar said, It was felt that we needed something really upbeat, you know. It was time for an uplifting musical about life in New York to come about. Mostly what the public will see and enjoy is a hybrid of the movie with a lot of the emotionality of the novel. But Glyncher and Joelis needed a score, and they turned to Carlos Franzetti. Not only was Franzetti an award-winning composer who worked on the Mambo Kings uh, doing the score, he was also the only person from the Mambo Kings musical who was willing to talk to me. Thanks, Carlos. Here is Carlos saying how he got the job and how he wanted to stay true to the sound of Latinx music in this particular era. In 1991, I did the music for the film, The Mambo Kings, uh, along with Robert Kraft, who was the music um, uh, composer of the song Maria, uh, what was the, the whole title? Something Maria, Beautiful Maria of My Soul, with Arnie yes. Blims, who wrote the, the lyrics and was uh, directing the movie. Now, they had three or four different composers during the post-production of the film, um, and for some reasons, they were not happy with um, the setup of these composers who were actually wrote full scores and, uh, you know, the sadness after the recording, thank you very much, here's the check, we're not going to use your score. So out of a music editor, which I, I had worked before, on a couple of movies, he said they're looking for a composer. I had just finished uh, doing a movie for Sidney Lumet called Q&A with a score of Ruben Blaze, but I wrote the whole thing, the whole orchestrations and conducting. And it's a movie with Armand Asante, who was acting on uh, the Mambo Kids. He was one of the brothers. And Arne Glimscher obviously saw the movie because he was interested to see what uh, Asante was doing, whatever. He had heard the score. So when they uh, mentioned my name, he said, oh, yeah, I'm interested. Uh, you know, so I met with Arne. I, I brought some demos. And I wrote uh, several cues of the film, which had a lot of source music, you know, because it was the, the orchestra of Tito Puente and Machito and things like that. So they needed a dramatic score to underline certain scenes, which is, you know, is what I did. He was very pleased with the music. One of the things he told me at first is, look, this happens in 1953. 
whatever Latin things you write, I don't want to hear salsa, 1970. I want to be in the Perez Prado, in the Machito era, in that, that type of thing. I said, fantastic, which is mambos and things like that, but uh, mm-hmm. without the whole New York scene of the 70s, the, yeah. the, you know, the phenomenon of salsa. Uh, the movie opened, very nice reviews, and, and then, you know, I, I kept a kind of relation with, uh, with with Arnie, and, you know, that he talked about several films, projects, uh, for one reason or another, I didn't do his next film, but around 2001, I think, he called me and said, uh, I'm interested in doing this uh, into a musical, to do the mm. Mambo Kings. Uh, would you be willing to work with me? And I said, sure. I mean, so we met and we started. And it was a very long process until we got to 2005 and the opening in San Francisco. Um, now, it took, now yeah, let, it took revisions and, 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 and changes and then sporadic kinds of, uh, I don't think the, the project will go on, whatever. And then finally it did materialize. We asked Carlos if he saw the potential of a musical in the source material. Well, the movie itself was a musical in, in the sense that it's about two brothers who are musicians who come to make uh, the American dream uh, from Cuba. They come to United States in the 50s. And it's full with uh, songs and melodic things. And uh, as I said, they're both musicians. So there are a lot of music in the in the film. There was a lot of music, and uh, I I didn't think that it was a bad idea. Um, it maybe it became a bad idea. So now they needed a producer, someone who could shepherd this show to Broadway. And even though it was very typical at this time for movies to be turned into musicals, this was dealing with subject matter that had not yet been seen, and that is a celebration of the Latinx community. Like we said before, the last one up until this time was The Cape Man. Yes, there had been many, many plays like Anna in the Tropics and the works of John Leguizamo, but a musical? They would need a producer with strong ideas and a vision for this work. Enter Daryl Roth. Mrs. Roth was also asked to be part of this podcast, and she was so kind to get back to us and said that she would rather not revisit this painful time in her life. And very, very understandable. I wish we had the chance to talk to her, though, to let her know that despite it not coming in, she should be applauded for trying to bring the story about a marginalized community to the stage. Um, she had done it quite often in her career as a co-producer and lead producer with things like Twilight Los Angeles, The Goat, Anna in the Tropics, Harlem Song, Wit, Kinky Boots, and Decent, and the list goes on and on, not to even mention her philanthropic work. So, Mrs. Roth, if you are listening to this, brava to you. Um, you should be commended and applauded because think of how easy it would have been for her to bring something light and fluffy that everybody had seen before to Broadway and the fact that she was trying something different. And same thing for Mr. Glimcher. They should be celebrated for this. And it wouldn't just be Daryl as lead producer. No, no, no. It would also be someone very close to her who was going to co-produce it with her. And that's her son, Jordan, also who was unavailable to talk about this particular show. And Jordan had an impressive record on his own because as a mere young man in New York, he produced the incredibly successful Donkey Show and a successful revival of the Rocky Horror Show. And in 2005, he would become a resident producer over at Dujamson. He said, quote, I think it's really a story that is just screaming to be a musical. It has sex and passion and mambo and rhythm and dance. Mom and son 
the Roths, bringing this great story to life at a capitalization of 12 million dollars. Now, the Roths had difficulty raising money for it because many of their usual producing partners feared that Arnie Glimcher was not up to the job. And you might ask, well, what job did Arnie Glimcher have on The Mambo Kings, the musical? Well, much like the movie, he was going to direct the musical. So we have individuals who had never really shepherded an original musical to Broadway before, and a director who had never helmed anything before directing this particular piece. This is a little bit more from Carlos. There was interest, and, uh, you know, we got investors on, on board. Uh, Arnie, uh, you know, was, you know, he's a very wealthy man, obviously. And so did uh, um, Daryl Roth and uh, her son, uh, Jordan, they uh, invested in the show and some other people. I mean, it was an expensive uh, show, $12 million. Plus, Carlos explained what was tricky for him to work on on his first big musical. Well, the composer doesn't have control of what he's writing. Um, they are like, there is a protocol. You know, I mean, the director is the king. <laughs> but the producers yeah. above him, you know, are calling the numbers as well. Now, the, the composer is working with a music director, which in this case, in the, in the Mambo King's uh, musical was Constantine Kitsopoulos, a fantastic musician and a wonderful person to work with. But he was telling me what, the, you know, and I was the composer. And then there was the question of the orchestrator. And they said, well, you know, we have to find an orchestrator. And a lot of people who were on the show said, but, you know, call Carlos. I mean, he's a fantastic orchestrator. That's basically what he's known for, which is the truth. And they said, no, but composers don't write their own orchestrations. And, uh, you know, we got this discussion. I said, well, you know, uh, Bernstein did. I mean, uh, yeah. know, there are other composers who, who did. I mean, I happen to be an orchestrator as well. And I I wound up doing all the orchestrations, uh, not only of the songs, but also of the, of, uh, of the dancing, of the ballet. So, um, and, and, and uh, but I, as I said, it, it was funny because I was a composer, I was the orchestration, but I was following what the music director was doing, arranging for certain scenes, the number of bars and then a stop and mm. then the music restarts and then stops. And, and this is what, in my opinion, uh, hurt um, the score the music score of the of the musical it was done too much as to mimic a movie you know it was cinematographic in the sense of having you know the song play for three four bars and then there's dialogue and then there is a, 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 a um, um, monologue and uh, you know things like that that stop the action and the flow of uh, the music we didn't have in the in the show any complete number except for uh, Vanna Vane singing, you know, which was uh, Christine Knoll. She did a wonderful rendition of a ballad along in the dark. But then the other the other tunes were cut uh, in the middle or, or or four bars into it, you know, to to accommodate some some sort of dialogue or soliloquy or whatever, and. Um, and then the music will start. So there was no, no memento in, in the sense of shows like complete 
music like in Oklahoma or South Pacific or, you know, the same with Side Story or, you know, the Sondheim yeah. musicals where you have a rendition of a whole song. And then, of course, there are songs that are stopped in the middle and a joke and whatever. But but most songs in the, in the Mambo Kings, except for the dance numbers, were kind of edited. What happened is that when we did the... the the show, the, the, the preliminaries, which was a reading uh, with actors and, and uh, you know, no singing. We had recorded a glorified demo at Avatar Studios in New York with a full orchestra and singers. And while we did the, the reading that they invited some investors and, of course, Clear Channel, because if Clear Channel is on board, then everything is okay. Mm. You know, it's it kind of a tacit, okay, their interest, we can we can go on with this thing. And I was, you know, it was like two hours of uh, Talisa Soto, who had played Maria in the original film, was reading, and, uh, you know, other actors were reading. And I was playing the music with a CD player. Now, these were like the full songs. These were like three-minute songs or two-minute songs, whatever. And uh, I remember at the end, well, the people, you know, applauded, got up, and Arnie Glimsher came to me and said, we have too much music. Now, a second after that, the representative from Clear Channel said, we love the music. And that's when mm. the show started. And eventually, after the 25 drafts or so, there would be readings and workshops in 2004. And that cast for the readings and workshops included uh, Anthony Carvello and Ivan Hernandez, Leah Hawking, Natasha Diaz, and Priscilla Lopez. Um, but Arnie had a few other ideas for casting, uh, which we'll get to a little bit later on. Uh, once again, Jordan Roth, summer of 2004, said, quote, we're looking towards opening in the spring of uh, 2005. We had a terrific workshop this summer. It's just going to be the sexiest musical. And more excitingly, a staff was, was coming into place with a gentleman named Sergio Trujillo, who was a Broadway dancer, and he was going to serve as the choreographer for this piece. This is from an interview with Sergio at the time. I grew up with all this. These dances are already in my body, but I still did research because I wanted to be open in my approach and really find the truth of the dance. If all you did was do the mambo on stage, you'd lose the electricity. It wouldn't love the audience. So I'm revamping the forms, giving them a theatrical bend. There's so much of Latin culture we can convey here. I'm paying a lot of attention to that and have deep respect for the music and the dance and passion of it all. The design team for the Mambo Kings features Ricardo Hernandez to do the sets, Ann Roth on costumes, Jules Fisher, Peggy Eisenhower on lighting. Music direction is going to be handled by Kevin Stites and to direct, like we said, Arnie Glimcher. I think Arnie, because we know he controlled the stage rights to this particular piece, it's, it's if you want to do the Mambo Kings, you have to have Arnie along with you in some capacity. Um, and I'm wondering if, I'm wondering if in her gut, uh, and his gut of Jordan and Daryl Roth thought to themselves, this might not be the best idea to have somebody shepherding a musical to Broadway that had never really worked on one before. Um, I wish we knew the, we knew the answer to that. 
in March of 2005, they announce what the plans are going to be for the Mambo Kings. From May 24th to June 19th, 2005, it's going to be playing at the Golden Gate Theater in San Francisco. It will then begin previews on Broadway July 20th and open August 18th at the Broadway Theater, the sexy yellow marquee of a woman's leg at a 90-degree angle in front of a man's leg promised the audience sex, seduction, and heat. Um, And I now want to just tell you a quick little personal story about the Mambo Kings, if I may. I remember going on a trip to New York City in the summer of 2005 and walking by the Broadway theater and seeing the marquee up and then finding out a few weeks later that the show was not going to be coming in. And I could not wrap my mind around this. How could a show not come in after it's been announced, after posters had gone up, after a theater had been secured, after tickets had been sold? And it was one of those things where I felt like this is not actually possible. And I remember distinctly seeing that beautiful yellow poster outside the Broadway theater. And now every time when I pass the Broadway theater, no matter what's playing there, I always think sadly of that little Mambo Kings poster that was supposed to be there for quite a number of years and and never got to stay up. Um, And uh, thank you for walking down memory lane with me. And like I mentioned before, there were some issues when it came to casting. Arnie had some very specific ideas about what he was looking for out of a cast. And this is more Arnie Glimsher's idea of casting uh, actors from Hollywood. You know, and uh, we were talking about several people. Finally, Isai Morales um, did, uh, you know, play one of the parts. The other one was Jaime Camille, who's from Venezuela. Very handsome man. And uh, Albita, who's a singer from Miami. But I think that there was also a problem that we were using a lot of outsiders, a lot of people who were not Broadway people. Mm. And I think that that created some sort of resentment. Uh, In the industry? In the industry, yes. Which is, you know, close-knit is not only the actors and, 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 and set designers and choreographers and whatever, saying that we use a choreographer from uh, Broadway, Circuit Trujillo, who did a fantastic job. Oh, yeah. And dancers from, from Broadway. But the actors, you know, uh, we have tried some, some actors and singers from Broadway, and they did a marvelous job. But then they went for, like, more like, okay, well, yeah, he's uh, he's he's a handsome actor, whatever. He doesn't belong to Broadway, but uh, we want it on the show. And uh, Isai Morales was not a singer. Um, Jaime Camille was not a singer. So, I mean, there were a lot of uh, people who couldn't really sing the songs. Mm-hmm. Coffee de Pablo was very good, very good singer. And she did, I'm glad to say that, uh, you know, she had a, a career after the Mambo Kings disaster. Yes. You know, she landed on TV, a very good role. And, uh, you know, I'm happy for her because she was a very nice lady. Starring in the role of Cesar Castillo is film and television star Isai Morales, who had recently starred on the acclaimed ABC series NYPD Blue. Nightclub impresario Fernando Perez, um, that was played by Roscoe Lee Brown on screen, is now going to be played by another screen legend, Mr. Billy D. Williams. Nightclub goddess Evelina Montoya, the evening storyteller, because, you know, you have to have a narrator, was Grammy Award-winning Cuban music star Albita, who defected to the U.S. from her native Cuba in 1993. Justina Machado 
Machado, who starred on the HBO series Six Feet Under, would be Ana Maria, and Jaime Camila, Mexican star, would be Nestor. And he actually said, There are 50 million Latins in this country, legal and illegal. They are immigrants coming to this country to make a better life, just like the brothers in our story. It's an everyday kind of story, which part of the appeal. It's nice in a show like this to show that Latins are not all about tank tops and tool belts or tattooed and living in jail. Form the songs we sing, so the clothes we wear, I can't get over how cool it all is, how beautiful it is. I think this is the first time that American producer is taking the chance of hiring a Latin cast. I'm the first Mexican in the history of my country who will originate a Broadway show. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And on May 10th, Billy D. Williams left the show due to hip problems. Um, and he was sort of the only big, big name that a general public would know that was associated with this show. So it was pretty sad to be losing Mr. Williams. But he was replaced with the one and only David Allen Greer, who before he was a internationally famous comedian on Living Color, was a Broadway musical actor. Um, he played Jackie Robinson in the first musical, um, and then, of course, has gone on to win a Tony Award for his wonderful performance in a soldier's play. But I was able to get my hands on a videotape of a run-through. Looks like one of the final run-throughs in the rehearsal studio. Uh, Billy D. Williams is still in the show at this time. Um, and you start to see watching this what the positives of this show are and what the negatives about this show are. The positives are Sergio Trujillo's choreography. It is so damn good. The opening, he has this beautiful female identifying dancer with these four male identifying dancers around her. It is hot. It is sexy. It is passionate. The percussion is great. Carlos's music is fantastic. And you you get so pumped and so excited and then they start talking the they start doing the book of this musical and the actors are performing as if they're on camera everything is small everything is subdued the dialogue honestly is not all that good and you sit there and very quickly it happens so fast the brothers are in Cuba. They have to flee because somebody's gotten in trouble with, with uh, flirting with another woman, and they have to escape to New York. It happens, and you're guessing, by the way. This is, I'm guessing at what's happening because it's not very clear on what's happening. Anytime this show is dancing, it is fantastic. Uh, this, he would have won a Tony Award for the choreography had this come to Broadway. The actors, unfortunately, are not all that strong, unfortunately. Christiane Knoll 
is marvelous um, as the, uh, uh, the, the blonde bombshell. Isai Morales, God bless him, he cannot sing. He's just not a singer. So it's a little, it's painful. It's painful because you really can't invest in this particular character. And you're supposed to believe this man is this great epic talent. And it's a little hard to believe that. And it looks like Glimcher has sort of directed them um, as if everything was a soap opera. So you really can't get attached to this. And what I find so fascinating, and I always think to me that this is a the sign of a show that's working or not working, watch the ensemble during a run-through because if they're still watching certain things, my gut is telling me that the show is probably in good shape because it's still holding their interest. Not this ensemble. This ensemble looks like they're doing 90 million other things besides actually focusing on anything that's happening in that rehearsal room. That's no tea. That's no shade. I'm just simply making an observation that it seems that they did not want to get too invested in this particular material. The Mambo Kings opens with a uh, narrator, um, this, this spiritual guide who's telling us this particular story. There really is no function for her in this particular show. And I don't know about you. I always get nervous when there's a narrator that comes out to sort of tell us things and move things along. Um, you know, if anything, it should have been like what they did over in Harmony, in which Chip Zine's character was looking back on his past, kind of like what Cesar's doing in the actual book of the Mambo Kings. But that's not the case here. And there's this, like I said, very confusing song. We don't really know what's happening. And the final, the first real book book number is uh, this number called Mambo Roomba Cha 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 that uh, the brothers sing to their cousins in America once they finally arrive. Let's listen to the song because I think Carlos's work on it is, is quite good. Like a clock keeps marking time, like a poet writing rhyme, my mambo, I play mambo. When a shell game moves too fast, or my horses come in last, I mumbo, mumbo, mumbo. If I'm ever feeling crummy, or the ladies aren't feeling chummy, I quicken up my pace and find a little place to mumbo, mumbo, mumbo. Cafe Society is waiting here for me to mumbo, mumbo, mumbo. A classy guy like me can teach them to be free and mumbo, mumbo, mumbo. When they hear our music playing, and they know we're here and staying, our name up there in lights will brighten Broadway nights with mumbo, 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 rumba, cha-cha-cha. Brings the girls from near and far on the dance floor until three. Arthur Murray envies me. So places are in stock to light. There's so much more than mambo, mambo, mambo. A family and wife have a happy life. It's mambo, mambo, mambo. Fame and fortune can be fleeting. Find the job that keeps you eating. So take some sound advice. Don't dedicate your life to Mambo, Mambo, Mambo. Mr. Cougar, take a pass. Abby, ladies, mind you last. In my 
milkshake for me. Mambo rumba cha cha cha. Welcome to America, where each day you have to be an exciting novelty. Mambo rumba cha cha cha. Welcome to America. First you freeze and then you thaw. Mambo rumba, mambo rumba, mambo rumba, mambo cha cha cha. And once they get to the Golden Gate Theater in San Francisco, um, there's a little bit of trouble. I was there on on um, San Francisco from May twentieth that we were rehearsal rehearsing until we opened and until June fifteen and the theater was crowded every night and every night we had a stand innovation. Mm. Not only that, uh, Deck and other labels came to see the show and we had offers from uh, different labels to do the the recording the cast album. And as far as the sales on, at the Broadway theater here, the reports were that the sales were brisk. And then the reviews come out. So we got we we got hammered by some critics, and um, I, you know, as I said, I take full responsibility of the musical part in the sense of the songs. I wrote the best I could. Um, so that's my department. I said, okay, well, if 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 uh, the blame falls on me, that's fine. But they were also criticizing the lyrics, the direction, the book. And the book was totally unfair because Oscar Ijuelos, who wrote the, the novel and got the Pulitzer Prize for it, uh, had absolutely nothing to say with the, um, with the script, with the libretto. This is the review from Variety. The raw ingredients for a crossover crowd-pleaser are present in New Tuner, The Mambo Kings, adapted from Oscar Huelos' Pulitzer-winning 1989 novel. But this advertised hot new musical at San Francisco's Golden Gate Theater is currently just lukewarm, an uneven, sometimes tepid package more middling than sizzling. To meet the show's rich potential by the time of its planned August launch on Broadway, creatives need to rein in sentimental song and story elements that, at present, are too blandly highlighted while kicking up a notch lead performances, pacing, and design contributions. Arnie Glimcher's movie was delightful, so long as it focused on pure, heady atmosphere, degenerating as the rotely melodramatic plot took precedence. Scripted by Huelos and Glimcher, with music by Carlos Franzetti, who contributed the picture's limited original score material, the stage version aims to juggle hothouse sensuousness with serious storytelling. Right now, the wrong side is winning. This literal-minded Mambo Kings should perhaps take a leaf from some cabaret stagings and stay within the nightclub. The fraternal and romantic torments would work better if their artificiality were heightened. Attempts at psychological naturalism only drag this party down. Here are some more critical observations from the San Francisco Chronicle. Whenever at Mambo's, the Broadway-bound new musical that opened Tuesday at the Golden Gate Theater is a quick-stepping, skirt-swirling, energetic blaze of lavish color, exciting choreography, and high spirits. 
that, unfortunately, doesn't happen often enough. The Mambo King bogs down in a cut-and-paste book, too many journeyman ballads, and except for the dancing, a puzzling lack of charisma on stage. The San Francisco Examiner. The Mambo Kings is dramatically sluggish, musically dreary, and full of every cliche in the American musical comedy handbook, including some offensive Jewish comic relief that, if removed, would shorten the show by a needed 20 minutes. The new songs, written by Carlos Franzetti with lyrics by Arnie Glimsher, are virtually tuneless. The Oakland Tribune. The bad news is that disaster looms over much of the show, the score features some alarmingly bad songs and some of the weakest lyrics since love was rhymed with glove a million years ago. If there's an expiration date on this Mambo Kings, it probably reads best by June 1958. Pity the poor actors who have to make something of the lame dialogue. And did I mention the lyrics are atrocious? Limited by Glimpshire's words, both in the songs and in scenes, the actors come across stiff and uncomfortable. You would too, if you had to say something like, the shrimp that sleeps gets carried away by a cocktail. The San Jose Mercury News. As fiery and sexy as a trip to the DMV, the Mambo Kings in its world premiere at San Francisco's Golden Gate Theater fizzles way more often than it sizzles. Trujillo's choreography is hot, 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 but Oscar Hiwejos and Arne Glimcher's dialogue is not, not, not. And the acting and direction in this two-and-a-half-hour production also are nowhere near as zesty and vivid. In fact, as directed by Glimcher, the pacing seems not so much slow as congealed. Overall, there's a static quality to the performances that smacks of soap opera acting. And now it's time to call in the doctors. We couldn't do what we really were going to do. So there were too many, too many things that happened that uh, was directing the Mambo Kings toward the iceberg, you know, and uh, yeah. we were going to hit the iceberg and sink. Many moons ago, before the internet knew every move of a show before it even played in front of an audience, show doctors would be secretly shuttled to an out-of-town destination, observe a troubled show, give notes, or sign on to fix it. It still happens rarely, and today very confidentially. For example, a recent musical comedy's lead was so disappointed by the lack of humor in the script, they paid for comedy writers out of their own pocket to come in to give their character funnier dialogue. But it was very hush-hush and done quite privately. If you can guess, uh, I'll send you a cookie. Also, the greatest snoop on Broadway, Michael Riedel, has really slowed down. Over time, Michael Riedel was the New York Post critic and columnist who knew everyone and everything going on in the Broadway community in the 90s, the aughts, and the 10s. He was both feared and voraciously read by everyone. He was shoved by director David Laveau, consistently wrote about the miscasting of Bernadette Peters and Gypsy, his opinion, not mine. He hosted theater talk and made Frank Rich and his wife the subject of many columns, examining influence in the media. But he was a great writer, a smart wit, and a great actor. He actually did two shows for me at 54 Below, and he was quite fantastic in both of them. And the Mambo Kings, even though it was 3,000 miles away from the New York Post, it was suddenly dominating the story in his column. The New York Post, June 10th, 2005. Mambo needs a doctor. Don't bother trying to book a flight to San Francisco this weekend. The planes are packed with Broadway types heading west to help producer Daryl Roth and her son Jordan figure out how to salvage their floundering $12 million musical, The Mambo Kings. 
So many directors and choreographers, Tommy Toon, Jerry Zaks, Walter Bobby, Jack O'Brien, Jerry Mitchell, have been corralled into service that, one producer notes, quote, it's like an SSD&C meeting, a reference to the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, a union. From the Dramatist Guild, the Roths have tapped from the Dramatist Guild, the Roths have tapped Moriestin, nine, David Ives, White Christmas, and Lynn Ahrens, Ragtime. And from the League of American Theaters and Producers, they've got Jack Viertel and Hal Luftig. These experts have their work cut out for them. Reviews for the Mambo Kings, which is based on Oscar Higuelos' popular novel and film about two Cuban brothers who start a mambo band in New York in the 1950s have been poor. A painfully bland mess that fizzles more than it sizzles, said the San Jose Mercury News. The show, quote, bogs down in a cut-and-paste book, too many journeyman ballads, and, except for the dancing, a puzzling lack of charisma on stage, said the San Francisco Chronicle. Variety called the show, which is scheduled to begin previews here at the Broadway Theater July 20th, an uneven, sometimes tepid package. Much of the blame for this upcoming flop, in Spanish, Fracaso is being pinned on Arnie Glimcher, the show's director, lyricist, and book writer. Senor Triple Threat, indeed. A successful art dealer, Glimcher has never staged a Broadway show. He got the job because he controls the rights to the material, having directed and produced the 1992 Mambo Kings movie. He got his foothold in Hollywood as the art advisor in the movie Legal Eagles, a legal thriller set in the art world. Production sources say his lack of theater experience is painfully obvious. Glimcher's pacing, said one critic, is, quote, not so much slow as congealed. He resisted aid from real theater people at first, relenting only after the devastating reviews. Now, he said to be willing to turn the show over to a professional director. Just who? If anyone can save it, remains to be seen. George C. Wolfe passed on the chance to take over the show because of scheduling problems. Mitchell, O'Brien, and Zax are booked too. The Roths are hoping Toon, along with his pal Yeston, will take on the assignment. They're both expert show doctors, having turned such out-of-town flops as My One and Only and Grand Hotel into Broadway hits. Toon was also instrumental in helping Twyla Tharp fix Movin' Out. But he hasn't been active on Broadway in many years and seems to prefer the role of informal advisor to official director. The Mambo Kings has been a troubled project from the start. The Roths had difficulty raising money for it because many of their usual producing partners feared, correctly as it turns out, Glimcher was not up to the job. In the end, the Roths put up a huge chunk of the $12 million themselves. No hardship for a family whose fortune is estimated in the billions. Roth's husband, Steve, is one of the most powerful real estate moguls in the country. He's the chief executive of Vornado Real Estate Trust, whose holdings include the new Bloomberg Tower on Lexington Avenue and one and two Penn Plaza. Fixing Mambo Kings could cost an additional two to three million. Steve Roth can certainly afford that, certainly. But many people who've seen the troubled show wonder if it's worth the effort. To say nothing of the blow to the Roth's prestige on Broadway should they fail. They have a fine track record when it comes to plays, and plenty of Tonys and Pulitzer Prizes to prove it, but they're untested when it comes to big new Broadway musicals. One thing experienced producers of musicals know is that sometimes the best decision is the most painful one. Close the show out of town. Back to Carlos. The producers is to start calling uh, doctors, the, 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 you know, the show doctors. 
One of them who happened to be a friend of mine, Maury Yesen, who did mine, a wonderful composer. Oh, lovely man. Yeah. And yes, and you know, I had I worked in, in advertising, music for advertising for thirty years. So and he was one of them who was writing also jingles, along with people like uh, uh, Mencken and and so many other people. But when they started showing that that oh, we're gonna fly this person, we're gonna fly that, you know, we gotta and, and and see what we can do. It showed weakness and it showed not a commitment that they should have had. In, in my opinion, what they should have had is, you know, let's say, okay, well, let's revise this. And I want everybody's opinion. What do you think that we can do to better the show? But in-house, ourselves, without any kind of outside help. Because when you are doing that, it means that, you know, we we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> you know, we're there. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Arnie Glimcher was not going to lose his pulse as a director. But I was going to be replaced. Uh, I remember talking to my lawyer and said, look, this is happening. And, and my lawyer said, don't quit. Don't quit. Let him fire you. <laughs> he was like okay. yeah, looking at, uh, you know, me building my dream house, you know, someplace. You know, they were going Good. to you deserve have it. to make a lot of money. Exactly. No, they decided to pull the plug. And as I said, in return, uh, not only the money to the investors, the outside investors, but return all the tickets that they had sold on Broadway, on this theater, to the customers who were buying tickets. And as I said, the sales were brisk. This wasn't going to be like Carrie, you know. And, okay, this was going to open and stay open for months. Maybe it wasn't going to be Miss Saigon or Cats, but it was going to be there for at least a year. Because people really, and you know, it's the people who enjoy the show that makes it in uh, the word of mouth that, yeah, I had a good time. And, you know, the farmer from Iowa who comes and, you know, cannot go to Le Mis because it's sold out or whatever, or, or cats, and, and, and will buy a ticket for Mambo Kings. And, and that's the way that the show would have, would have taken its right path and stay there. And maybe, you know, who knows? I mean, as I said, we were going to record the album. There were going to be a lot of things that uh, it would have made it possible for a lot of people to enjoy the show. And they wanted to take some liberties. The producers wanted to get numbers like Guantanamera and uh, conga lines and things like that. That I said, well, you know, this is, this is not a party. This is a, a musical. It's narrating you know, a story of two musicians and their, you know, their, their adventures and their, you know, the, the failures and things like that and the tragic death of Nestor. So um, I don't I don't think that putting Guantanamera there, you know, and everybody celebrating is something that, it, it, saying so, they did put Guantanamera. I mean, in, in, in other, you know, sort of non-Cuban songs mm. into into this um, Broadway show. Uh, I talked to Arnie, and one of the, the, the times that he answered back to me, he said, uh, you know, I've, uh, over my dead body, this will be a concert of music. I said, well, mm. no, that's not the case. I mean, you know, we need the songs because they are not complete. They are not understandable. And as I said, you know, a lot of critics were saying that the songs are awkward. The songs are... Of course they were awkward, you know. When you have, like, uh, you must remember this, a kiss is still a kiss, and 
You know, Sam, when I was there in Paris one time, I remember that, yes, and a case is still a case. And Ingrid Berman says, you know, Laszlo is a wonderful man, but I'm going to leave him for you, Rick. So, you know, you don't have a song. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> it's not a musical anymore. Right, exactly. So, uh, in, in, it, it was, I, you know, I, I felt very sorry for um, Oscar Iguelas because this is his children, um, his child. I mean, you know, he wrote the book and he created Nestor and Cesar Castillo and Vanna Dane and, and, and Dolores. And, uh, you know, and the book, as I said, got great attention. He won the Pulitzer Prize. And from there on, it, it, it was destroyed. The New York Post, June 24th, 2005. Michael Riedel. Bombo Kings, looking like another Cape Man. It's a Latino-themed musical with a huge budget and a host of problems. The creator has a big ego, but no stage experience. And he's been sidelined by a new creative team, including a director named Jerry. Theater insiders are wondering, have Broadway producers Daryl Roth and her son Jordan bought themselves a Cape Man? The parallels between that infamous Paul Simon flop and The Mambo Kings, the Roth's flop in the making, are eerie. Back in 1998, Simon, a stage novice, aimed to reinvent the Broadway musical with his show about Sal Agron, the notorious Puerto Rican street gang leader who murdered two teenagers in 1959. But the show floundered in previews and Simon was forced to turn it over to veteran director Jerry Zaks. Zaks did what he could, but The Cape Man ran just three months, closing at a loss of $11 million. The Mambo Kings is certainly lighter in spirit than The Cape Man. It's about a pair of Cuban brothers who come to the States to break into showbiz, but it's been plagued by Cape Man-like problems. For one thing, Arnie Glimcher, its director, book writer, and lyricist, like Simon, has zero stage experience. His ineptness is a big reason why the $12 million show is in serious trouble. His direction lacks theatrical flair, and his book is static and confusing, according to people involved in the show. For two weeks now, the Roths have been hunting for a directing and writing team to replace him. Tommy Toon and composer Maury Eston topped the list, but after seeing the show in San Francisco, they passed. Note to Toon, you've been away from Broadway too long. Many of the kids in The Mambo Kings have never heard of you. They're bringing in Tommy Toon, one said. He writes lyrics. But the Roths have lined up a B-team. Playwright David Ives, who blows the cobwebs off old musicals for encores, and composer Jason Robert Brown, whose show doctoring experience consists of trying to fix Urban Cowboy. For a director, they're negotiating with a Jerry. But this time, it's a Mitchell, not a Zach's. He turned them down. Mitchell, the choreographer of Hairspray and The Full Monty, has yet to direct a Broadway show. But earlier this month, he won the Tony for his choreography for La Cage aux Folles. As of yesterday, Mitchell was on the fence. People close to him say he thinks the Mambo Kings needs a lot of work. He's also reluctant to put his name on what could turn out to be one of the costliest flops in Broadway history. If he can't fix the Mambo Kings, the critics will hang it around his neck like a millstone, and he'll sink with it to the bottom of the Broadway pond. The Roths are going to extraordinary lengths to get him. They're even willing, I'm told, to let him work on the show for three weeks before making the decision to open at the Broadway theater. It's a good thing the Roths are billionaires. Daryl's husband, Steve, is a New York real estate kingpin, because this is going to cost them. The Schuberts, who own the Broadway, are likely to demand a substantial amount of money to hold the theater in limbo. 
They could put another musical, The Color Purple, in there in a minute. That, plus the cost of the delay and the new creative team, will push the price tag of the Mambo Kings to $15 million. If you live in a building owned by the Roths, don't be surprised if the rent goes up. When they interviewed Huelis, he said, It's hard to mount a musical. I give Arnie Glimsher all the credit in the world for putting it all together. And since Mr. Glimsher also wrote the lyrics and worked with composer Carlos Franzetti with it, it's more or less his show, to be honest. In an ideal universe, I think I would have had a lot more history of Cuban music and that kind of thing to make it educational as well as anything else. But all that stuff, when you're actually staging it in real time, you lose the audience with that kind of thing, you know? It's a different thing than working on paper, and then working it out with actors. It's not something I would want to do every three or four years. I would say that I've learned a lot, but I don't know if I would want to do it again. I am a novelist, and I am an independent-minded person. As much as I have faith in the musical itself, I'm a very practical, working-class person. So I stick to what I know. And then finally, on June 27th, 2005, a statement from the Roths. Quote, we are deeply grateful for the amazing dedication and remarkable spirit of the entire cast, crew, and creative team of the Mambo Kings. While we had pursued several incredibly talented people to join the team and help us realize the full potential of the show, it became apparent to us all that the production could not successfully go forward on the current schedule. And what was supposed to be the first big celebration of the Latinx community on Broadway halted in San Francisco. What was supposed to be the first collaboration between this dynasty of producers, the Roths, also halted in San Francisco. June 28, 2005, the New York Post, a day after the release, Michael Riedel. Mambo Anogo. They won't be doing the Mambo this summer on Broadway after all. Producers of The Mambo Kings, a $12 million musical based on Oscar Hijuelos' Pulitzer Prize book, pulled the plug over the weekend. As reported in The Post, the show, which played to lukewarm reviews in San Francisco, was desperately seeking a show doctor. While we had pursued several incredibly talented people to join the team and help us realize the full potential of the show, it became apparent to us all that the production could not successfully go forward on the current schedule, said mother-son producers Daryl and Jordan Roth. Now that we've sunk the Mambo Kings, let's make a run at another winner, Lennon. Many years later, Daryl Roth looked back on this experience when she was doing a symposium with her and fellow producer Jean Dumanian, who's the other voice you're going to hear in this. This is Daryl Roth talking about her experience on the Mambo Kings. Oh, it's such a sad chapter in my life. It is, because that was <laughs> one of the best things it. ever, Daryl. I mean, I really well, a tough one. champion you for doing that. Thank you for I really do. That. It was Mambo Kings. Oh, yeah. And it was a project that I was really devoted to and thought had every possibility of being a wonderful musical, Latin music, beautiful story, romance. Everything about it was right. And it just didn't work. And we got it as far as the out-of-town... San Francisco. In San Francisco. And it just wasn't coming together. Uh, you know, we called in what we call, uh, script doctors, and mm -hmm. we called in, you know, friends of the court. And we just tried to figure it out in every which way, and it, it just broke my heart. But 
it wasn't meant to come to Broadway, and it wasn't, I mean, it was a very expensive proposition, mm -hmm. and it was really very sad, and as I said, disappointing, because first of all, I'm a person who is good to her word, and if I say I'm going to produce something, <laughs> and I give my word, I am going to do it come hell or high water. And so that aspect of it was really personally devastating for me. And you feel so, you know, like you've let everybody down, you've disappointed everyone, which of course you have, and it's hard to live with. <laughs> well, um, I, but it was I, the I, right I, thing. In, yeah. in retrospect, it was truly the right thing. I have to interject and just mm -hmm. say that she championed this project, and uh, I thought it was wonderful that you did that. Well, I thank mean, you really. For that. I, she was terrific with it, and uh, it just wasn't meant to be. Do you think it will have a second chance? No. No? No. So that's um, not one that's not for me. likely to have a second I mean, chance. if someone else wants to give it a try, it's still a great story. Well, if I gave it a try, would you come? <laughs> no. No. No, I would have to really um, say that, that I had to close that chapter for me mm -hmm. because it was really very debilitating. I almost couldn't go on to yeah. keep producing. It was uh -huh. so awful that I wouldn't, I wouldn't reopen that, no. I mean, I'll take a chance on anything but I'll take a new chance, you know what I mean? I, I won't go back and think, did I do something wrong and could I do it differently? Um, you know, I sort of beat myself up enough on that one and it's over. It's over. You are Queen Esther. Yeah. <laughs> it's, called, Esther. it's called Been There, Done That. No. Yeah, no. Part of the problem next? was that you had a neophyte director uh, who was connected to the project. I mean, that was part of the problem. Yeah, he's a talented uh, person and uh, he had directed the film and so, mm -hmm. you know, it was the right thing to do at the time. But it ran its course. And you I have to say, it's, you know, it was for the best. Yeah. Because what would have happened if I did just continue coming into New York, it would have not been successful. In my, in my heart, I know it wasn't good enough mm -hmm. to be successful. And that probably would have been worse. I think to be a good producer, you have to know when to cut to your losses. When, <laughs> yes. when exactly. and how to cut yes. your losses. We've all a lot been there. Yeah. And painful as it is to close a show, believe me, it's... It's the hardest thing to do. It's the hardest thing to do, but you do it because uh, in respect to your investors, so you don't just keep mm -hmm. you know, running the well dry. Mm -hmm. You have to just say, that's it. Sorry, it didn't work. We all hoped it would, but it didn't. Yeah, and it does happen. So the Mambo Kings never came to Broadway, nor did many of the Latinx artists involved with this particular show. Sergio Trujillo would go on to win a Tony Award for his choreography in Ain't Too Proud and has done really well for himself. Arnie Glimscher went back to the world of art. Oscar Huelis passed away in 2013. Uh, Michael Riedel, when asked to appear on this show, said, quote, I have no memory of the Mambo Kings at all. How long ago was that? End quote. And the Roths have had great success with Jordan becoming president of New Jamson Theatres. The Broadway Theatres' yellow posters were replaced by those for the color purple. And eventually, Latinx characters would find a home on Broadway in 2009 with In the Heights, which is now a milestone in Latinx musical theater representation. But before In the Heights, there was the Mambo Kings, a musical that was attempting and its artists were attempting to shine a spotlight on a marginalized community that needed their voices to be heard and needed to have positive representation put on to the stage. So while everyone still talks about In the Heights as this groundbreaking musical, please don't forget all the heroes that worked on The Mambo Kings, the musical.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.